Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It is Wednesday night, and it is time for another episode of Friends and Fiction. We are really looking forward to tonight, so let's get started. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey. I am Patty Callahan-Henry. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And this is Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we'll be talking with Veronica Roth about her newest novel, Poster Girl. And then on the second half of the show, we'll be talking to Gabrielle Zevin about her hit novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And don't forget, as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and wherever you can. And one way to do that is to visit our Friends and Fiction bookshop.org page where you'll find Veronica's books and Gabrielle's books and books by the four of us. And every guest we've ever had is there <laughs> at a discount. It is an amazing little bookshop. You, you'll scroll through and be like, oh my gosh, you'll click, <laughs> click, click. So we also encourage you to make a book purchase in the coming weeks at the bookshop.org page of Macintosh Books in Sanibel Island, Florida, which was not hurt by the hurricane, not damaged, but destroyed. So it is a great way to support them as they find a way to rebuild or relocate. And as a bonus, bookshop.org is offering free shipping today only. So get on it. I mean, don't get on it right now because you're watching <laughs> us. But when this is over, get on it. And remember that offer ends in a few hours. That's right. And have you seen our fall schedule for the Wednesday night live shows? It's under announcements on our Facebook page. Next week, we are excited to welcome Lisa Jewell to the show. I'm getting shivers thinking about it. I was going to say, I can't wait, I can't wait. Um, we also want to remind you that Mary Kay's The Santa Suit is brand new in paperback this week, and it's a perfect fit for our Friends in Fiction reading challenge and your stocking. This month, we're challenging you to read a book with family secrets. And we know Mary Kay writes those oh so well. So why not order a few copies as holiday gifts from Macintosh's bookshop.org shop tonight with free shipping. And I think we also have to say congratulations to Kristen Harmel because, yes, her 10th anniversary um, of the sweetness of forgetting hit the USA Today bestseller list. (laughs) Years in the making and... A big bestseller in the United States, just like in the rest of the world now. <laughs> Thank you so Congratulations. much. Congratulations. You charted. You charted today. Yes. Excuse me. Yes. <laughs> and in honor of Kristen charting, you know that lately we've been loving doing an Ask Us Anything segment. So if you have a question for us, 
Type it in the comments now or leave it under the thread in the Facebook page announcements. And if we have time tonight, we have two fabulous guests. So we'll see if we get to them in the after show. But if not, rest assured, we are keeping a rolling list of all your great questions and we will be answering them in an episode. You know, I went through and compiled a bunch of them the other day and I was like, I can't wait to answer some of them. There are some great questions coming in. So definitely keep sending them. All right, ladies. But for now, shall we get to Veronica Roth, the first of our two guests this evening? Absolutely. Veronica is the New York Times bestselling author of Chosen Ones, the hugely popular Divergent series and the Carve the Mark duology. She also authored the short story collection, The End and Other Beginnings, and she is the guest editor of the most recent, The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. Her novel, Divergent, won Publisher Weekly's Best Book of 2011. And I know this because my daughter was still in high school at the time, and she was obsessed (laughs) with the Divergent series. And the series was adapted into three hit films starring Shailene Woodley, who's so oh, I was, beautiful. I was She's a huge so cool. fan. I, I yeah. read them all when they came out. They were so great. Um, yeah. So Veronica lives in Chicago and her new novel, Poster Girl, is set to be released next week. Sean, can you bring Veronica on? Hi, Welcome. Hi. Hi, Veronica. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have Thanks you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad Thanks. that I ruined your kids' lives, probably. least with that one end that we won't talk about. But oh, we're not. No, I, I didn't have a kid who was reading them at the time. I'm just a shattered shell of who I used to be. Thanks. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They were fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> we are so happy to have you. So can you begin tonight by telling us a little bit about Poster Girl? And then we always like to ask this, what is the book really about? Oh, boy. Um, well, Poster Girl is a dystopian mystery. So it's about um, 10 years after an authoritarian regime collapses, the woman who was the face, like the literal face of the propaganda posters, um, she's been locked away along with like everyone else who has kind of favored by that regime. Um, But she gets an offer from an old enemy um, who says if she can find a missing girl, then they're prepared to like give her her freedom. But uh, it gets a lot more complicated. (laughs) Um, And as for what it's really about, oh, I don't know. I mean, speaking of uh, books about family secrets, I I think there's big family secrets in Poster Girl too. So maybe it's really about the way that we, the way that we perceive our family and the few things that we actually know about them. Everyone's a mystery, you know? Yes, we are. Absolutely. Well, as you know, your wildly popular, popular young adult novels have been out, but your adult debut Chosen Ones came out in April of 2020. So you're entering this new phase of your career, one in which you use science fiction and we talked about you being the editor of, of that collection. So you're using science fiction to ask these much bigger questions about our lives, about the universe, about who we are as humans. Can you talk to us a bit about that, both the transition to the new phase of your writing and the idea of using science fiction to ask those important questions? Well, I think that's what science fiction is so good at. Um, mm-hmm. It can explore things through exaggeration that 
are a little harder to contend with in contemporary works. Um, or, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that I have never written one. <laughs> so um, I don't have a lot of experience, but I think you can kind of, if there's a layer of distance between the reader and whatever questions you're asking, there's a kind of, you can get a different level of engagement with it if it's like a challenging or difficult question. So that's what I love about it the most, apart from the kind of escapism part of it. Yeah. Um, so that's why I've always loved science fiction. But uh, you asked me another question and I forgot. About this new, I, I should know better than to ask you at the same time because when people do that to me, I'm always like, and sorry, what was the first one? Uh, I, was, I was asking a little bit about this this transition to your adult novel in 2020 uh, and, and how you felt about the new phase of where you're heading. Was it on purpose? Did you make a deliberate decision? Was it, you know, kind of an outgrowth of, of your other novels? Well, I think it wasn't so deliberate. It was more about like... Yeah what ideas were speaking to me at that time, which sounds very like, woo woo. Um, sounds like an really, author. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, pulled along by your muse or whatever. But really, I, I think I just had different questions about the world um, and different themes I wanted to explore. And so uh, other things just started to become more appealing. Like there, in YA, a lot of the time you're exploring kind of like the first exciting moments of, of someone encountering one thing or another, whether it's romance or, or something else. And I guess I started to feel like, well, what about like the, the second, third, or like 50th time that you deal with something like what happens then? <laughs> so that, I think that's yeah. why all my adult books so far have been about like what happens after the story you usually hear. Um, so poster girls kind of like after the, big revolution that fells a dystopian government. Like, well, what happens then? I guess. Right. I don't know. I would like to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Just in case. which is why we read your books. Exactly. Yeah. Now we know. Well, I do think that sometimes our transitions, we've talked about all of us have transitioned from one kind of book we wrote to another. And it's never, sometimes it's a deliberate, I'm going to do this. And sometimes, like you said, it's just an outcrow of your curiosity city so yeah yeah absolutely yes well so veronica in poster girl the main character is a victim of the system but she's also not a total innocent and that makes her and her story so much more complex there are no easy answers for her which um keeps us turning the pages i think one of many things um so can you talk about the decision to make her just as guilty as the people around her in some ways yeah, I think that's like where the book came from. So I had this kind of like concept in mind where I was like, okay, I'll write like after the dystopia is over, you know, what happens then, but had no idea what kind of story that would be or what character would tell it. And then when I thought about Sonia um, writing about someone who is guilty instead of innocent, like I've, I've written pretty much, I think in almost all my books, it's like a pretty straightforward heroic figure, even if they're kind of prickly. Um, Sonia is not bad. So I think that was the thing, like the, the grain of the idea that kept me wanting to write the book to begin with, just because I think it's hard to hold these ideas in tension that you can be a victim and a perpetrator at the same time. But I think that's kind of the effect of these harmful or oppressive systems. They, they create the conditions in which like people, some people turn on the people around them or don't have a kind of like they feel, um, 
they feel like they don't have, they can't afford to be generous with each other anymore. And uh, um, I, like that. I think, I think that's, that's what was so interesting to me about her that, I don't know. I, I don't think the book like lets her off the hook. I mean, I hope it doesn't because that wasn't my intention. Um, but I also think there's some sympathy to extend to her because it's hard to know how you would act in a, in an environment like this. So I feel for her. And I also sometimes judge her <laughs> just, you know, it's good to have both. I guess. Yeah. Well, that's what makes it's nice to have those rub right? up against each other. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> And it makes the character real and dynamic. You know what I mean? It, it, uh, that's, we're all, we're all kind of contrasts, right? Yeah. 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 Um, Except you, you're just sweet. You're just. <laughs> Wait, I'm not. Yes. Uh, yeah. She just happened to be speaking. So I just, yes. All of you are all light and goodness. Everybody. All yeah. I would not like sure. to be, I would like to be more interesting. <laughs> there you are. Veronica, talk to us a bit about your career in general. You basically exploded onto the literary scene in your early 20s with the Divergent series, which, of course, were enormous bestsellers that were made into the three movies and more. I know you wrote the first book during your senior year in college when I was basically just trying to get out of college. <laughs> And so that's pretty extraordinary that you did that. Could you talk about what it was like to have such a huge hit right out of the bat at such a young age? Well, <laughs> sorry, I'm like, buckle up. Um, I don't know. It, it, was, <laughs> it was amazing, but it was also, I mean, it was, it was insane. I don't know how else to put it. I didn't really expect, I didn't expect any of that to happen because if I did, that would be like the peak of delusion, you know, but um <laughs> <laughs> but the reality so was, delusion, that delusion. Yeah, I know all it did happen. But uh, if I'd expected it to, gosh, what an asshole that would make me. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but, We'd like to hear that you're way more damaged than you are, if that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the challenging part about it is that it kind of like, well, it was a good thing, but also a challenging thing in that it kind of exploded through all of these goals that I might have articulated if I'd had a moment, you know, hitting a bestseller list and getting a movie adaptation. Like those are things that are like pretty typical writer dreams. And Divergent just like did all of them at once, um, <laughs> which is awesome. But then after it was over, I was like, OK, well, what do I, what do you do like when you've reached yeah. this peak and you know that it's unlikely that you'll ever reach that peak again because it was unlikely that you reached it to begin with like what do you strive for after that mm -hmm. um and that was a that was a tricky thing to figure out um ultimately i think what i decided is that you have to have like an unreachable goal like just getting better with each book um yeah. getting better as a writer and getting better as a person so i think that's what's carried me through the aftermath of that wonderful and stressful thing that happened. Um, like it's okay not to, not to reach those exact points again. It's okay to have different goals now. Yeah. So. You know, um, you wrote this wonderfully honest piece for, for salon.com last summer about a decision you made to kill off a major character in the third and final. I'm book. not listening. <laughs> <laughs> not the, third and final book of your Divergent series. And that was a, a decision you received threats and angry emails about. And you're, in your piece, you wrote, I'm not interested in providing an end to that discomfort. And it's not because I want to shock people or because I am, as one morning show host put it, ruthless. 
It's because the ending is an exploration of resilience for the characters that remain as well as for the reader. It communicates that losses can be endured, that healing is possible, that pain is not forever. Love that. I would love to hear about, hear you talk about following that inner compass and making those kinds of decisions, which um, uh, much older writers, way older writers, have problems making for their for their books. Well, I think it it was I mean it was a it was a hard thing, but it didn't feel hard in the moment. Like when I was just sitting there um, looking at you know looking at the word document, killing that character. <laughs> I was like, this is, I was fully convinced this is the right move for this story. It communicates Mm -hmm. what I've been trying to build toward for this whole series. And so it didn't feel risky in the privacy of my own home. (laughs) It wasn't until it like (laughs) leaked early um, because, you know, you have to start sending it out to be translated and like, you know, who knows what happens after that point. And it leaked (laughs) early and it was intense. (laughs) But um, I think I, I encountered some of that again with this book. I had in my original outline a much different ending in mind Ooh. and a much different like last third. I wish I could explain exactly what it is because I otherwise, I don't know, but I can't spoil it for you. But yeah. um, I had a friend, a fellow writer, uh, Courtney Summers, who I told her both ending ideas and I was like, what do I do? And she was like, you obviously do the brave one. Like you have to do the brave one. Otherwise you'll be disappointed. Like, uh, you know, readers yeah. encounter your work and it speaks to them in deep ways. And that's great. But you're the one who carries your book for the rest of your life. So you have to do the thing that you're convinced of because like you have to carry it around. So um, that's what I always remind myself of. It's like this lives with you forever. So make sure that you feel proud of it and you feel fully convinced by it. Yeah, I love that. And, but I, I also love that by choosing the harder ending, as you said in that piece, you're communicating to your readers that losses can be endured and that that healing is possible and that pain is not forever. I mean, I just think that is such a beautiful, powerful way to put it. And it's almost like even if people think that's not what they want in the ending, like it essentially does them good in the end. I, I love that. I love that that with your words, you have the power to communicate a message beyond the message that's coming out of the story itself. I, I just, I think that's incredible. Um, well, it, sorry, okay. shout out to my, shout out to my therapist for all that stuff. <laughs> like, it's okay to be uncomfortable. <laughs> it's funny how books are therapy for us though, right? Like as we're writing them, it's almost like you don't know that's what you're doing. I, that's, I, I just, I was, that's a whole episode. I just have that's to interject and say I was I was at a luncheon for Ellen Hildebrand earlier today, and she also credited her therapist for like a pretty major career move. And I'm like, maybe this is a sign. Like maybe I need to go work some things out, and we'll write a brilliant book because of it. There you go. <laughs> I feel like I'm always working things out on the page. So, um, so Veronica, your forthcoming February 2023 title, Arch Conspirator just received a starred review from Publishers Weekly. Congratulations. And they called the book a taut, defiant re-envisioning of Sophocles' Antigone, which, did I say that right? Antigone? Is that how you say it? Okay. Which brilliantly probes many of the same themes. The plot preserves the shape of the original without ever losing the capacity to surprise. And more importantly, prod reflection and recognition. This powerful tale of reproductive oppression 
is sure to wow. Well, wow. First of all, it sounds amazing. Um, second, there are lots of authors doing retellings of classics these days, but you chose a retelling of a story written in 441 BC. <laughs> Can you talk to us about taking on what must have been a really unique challenge? Yeah, so I didn't ever plan on doing any kind of retelling because I think it's really challenging to take something that already exists and to adapt it into any other form while maintaining enough of its shape to make it recognizable. Like it just feels impossible, like playing in someone else's sandbox. And yet, here we are. Here we are. I have it right here um, with this one. But the reason I chose it, I mean, I actually didn't. So yeah, I had no plan. I said to a friend, like, I'm not doing any retellings. Retellings are everywhere these days. And then like six hours later, I said to her, well, maybe if it was Antigone. And she was like, okay, well, you have to do it. <laughs> so thank you. Shout out to, to her. Um, but the the play Antigone, just like in case you didn't study it in school or in case you don't remember studying it in school, is about a, a young woman who like defies her uncle, the king, in order to bury her brother properly. So she is, uh, it's not a spoiler to say, she's sentenced to death at the end. It's a Greek tragedy, so it doesn't end well. But um, adapting it was kind of a, it was a challenge. I tried to keep the beats of it the same or similar, but um, sorry, the reason that I gravitated toward it is because of the character of Antigone. So it's written in 441 BC, but she is still one of the most nuanced and complex and powerful characters, women characters I've encountered. Um, she has stuck with me since high school when I first read the play. Um, and I don't know, I think that that was a reason. That's that's the whole reason is because she is uh, like like that review says, she's she's defiant. She's borderline self-destructive and driven by this like really powerful inner compass. Um, that leads her to use whatever resources she has at her disposal, despite her total lack of institutional power um, to do what she thinks is right. So pretty, it's it's a pretty amazing place. So if you're gonna read one or the other, like for some reason you have to pick, you should read the original, but also- <laughs> <laughs> I should read both. Should read both. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's just going to be fascinating to see what you've done with the whole concept. And I mean, especially after hearing the, the wonderful praise in that um, in that starred review, it, it just sounds fantastic. So, Veronica, um, here, one of the things I really, really like about you is that you could have stuck to this. I mean, you had cornered dystopian YA, right? Like you could have stuck to this thing that like the world had embraced you for, but you've written everything from short stories to adult fiction now. And it feels like everything you do is sort of a further evolution of who you are. Can you talk to us a little bit about continuing to push your boundaries as a writer, um, it, both kind of why you do it and, um, and, um, and how you feel it's changed you, how, how you kind of feel your, your path is evolving as you go. Well, first of all, thanks. Um, I, oh, I never even thought about it that way. So I'm going to have to take a beat to catch up. But yeah, I think I just, I can't do the same thing over and over again. I, in some ways it would be nice, you know, to like kind of have a reliable, like there's something lovely about that stability, but um, my brain doesn't work that way. So alas, um, <laughs> I just have to keep doing something weird. I like not that weird, uh, but you know, I, I, 
I think I live for the challenge of it. And I also write in order to get to know myself. Like um, there's a good quote about writing. That's how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Yeah. Um, I, forget, yeah. I forget who said it, but um, I think it's Joan Didion. Maybe, maybe I'm making that up. I don't <laughs> it's a great Somebody quote. will put it in the comments. I know they will. But, but I really believe that. Like I, when I'm speaking, like when I'm speaking out loud, I don't, always know I don't I don't always know where it comes from but when I'm writing I I feel like I get to know myself better each time and so if you're committed to growth as a person and that's the way that you get to know yourself you got to keep writing um new things and exploring and taking on new challenges like this book was a mystery which is the thing I told myself I would not write because it sounds very hard and you know what it was (laughs) it is Yeah. yeah No. Not easy. Okay. We have a million more questions for you. And I have I have a lot of um, boundary pushing questions for you. But we have a lot of really great viewer comments. So this is going to echo back to what you just said and the way that your brain works and that you want to do something else and something different. And Ricky Brody is asking, have your editors tried to pigeonhole you and make you only write in one genre? Or and this is my part, have they allowed you without much pushback to explore these other things? Ooh, spicy question. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, kind of. I mean, um, not really, not in the way that you'd think. So basically, the only pressure I've ever received, I don't think it really came from the editor so much. Well, maybe a little. I don't, it depends. I've had a few editors. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> we're gonna skim right over that just moving along <laughs> i don't want to like point out anyone specific yeah but, i know uh, i know i'm just laughing yes yeah, so uh i think what they prefer because it's like easier to market is really grounded sci-fi and fantasy so contemporary fantasy that takes place in the real world mm-hmm. and sci-fi like poster girl that has like sort of limited sci-fi elements as opposed to being like in a galaxy far, far away, which is a little harder to get people on board with. Um, And so I think there's been a very gentle, like, if you could get interested in these ideas, particularly, we would love it. (laughs) So that's kind of the the vibe. (laughs) But I get it because, you know, their jobs are, their jobs are challenging and it's like, it's hard to get people to read books, period. So getting them to read your specific book is always like, good luck. And to stick with you. Right. Yes. To read with you and then stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. But I ultimately this stuff is not under my control. So it's yes. like if you want a book, you're gonna get There's this a book. This weird one in another galaxy. <laughs> or or bust. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Um this might be like one of my favorite live questions we've ever gotten. Jeremy Howard would like you to rank your heroines in order of their badassery. <laughs> wow thank you Jeremy <laughs> okay okay in order of bad okay how do we define this I don't even know okay I think um I think Sonia's like the least badass she can't she can't fight anybody <laughs> okay yeah okay if that's how the definition we're using I mean that's tough and then um you know, I, I feel like this uh, question asked makes me, I'm such a sci-fi writer. I'm like, well, okay, like, which world are we occupying in order to rank the badassery? Like, can they use magic? Do they have spaceships? Like, which one are we? <laughs> um, 
anyway, <laughs> assuming they have all their own like original powers or whatever, I think Syra is probably the most badass. And she's from Carve the Mark, which is a space opera. And then Sloan, who's Chosen Ones. And then Triss is Divergent. Divergent. And then, uh, and then Sonia. Okay. What about Antigone? Antigone's a badass. Oh, Antigone. Oh my God. Well, her bad, I think she's right above Sonia. And the only reason is because I'm I'm clearly using some kind of like a physical capacity barometer to judge this. Because if we're going with like fortitude, like inner fortitude, I have no idea (laughs) what (laughs) ranking system we're using. So (laughs) I I went the easy route. Sorry. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. That was I, great. I love that. What, what a great question. Thank you, Jeremy. That was a fantastic <laughs> question. Well, Veronica, we have so loved having you. I wish we could keep you around for like hours. But um, but before you leave, we would we always love to ask our guests for a writing tip. And yours is obviously a brain we would really like to pick. So um, would you mind sharing a writing tip with us tonight? And I'm sorry, I forgot to warn you ahead of time we were gonna ask that. I feel like she's already good. There was a couple in there that I was like, wait, we need to like sound bite this. This yeah, is basically great. I'm just trying to get us all a free writing class with Veronica. Let's just stick with me. Come on. Well, uh, okay. You have the option of like a a really practical one or like a a little more, uh, a little more, I don't know. We want this one. We want that one. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, My advice is insofar as it is possible, like you must learn to let go of the initial idea that you held in your mind when you wrote your rough draft. Like mm. you have to, sometimes you have to kill it like a, a darling, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. have to allow the, like, let go of the thing you love and embrace the thing you don't know yet. Because often like you discover what the book is really about after you write the rough draft. And if you hang on too tightly to your original vision, then you're never going to make the book as good as it could be. And I, I, this is my top tip because I think like new writers who come into my Instagram DMs to ask for advice and experienced writers who are going through their editorial letters and me, you know, we all struggle with this where you just have to learn how to let things go, learn how to like trust that if you have a really amazing idea, it will eventually emerge in the form that it it needs to emerge. So that's my advice. My it's like my advice. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I think in more than 140 shows, no one has given us that tip or anything. I know it's it. really great. That's fantastic. <laughs> so well done, Veronica. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight. And we cannot thank wait you, for Veronica. everyone out there to read Post a Girl next week when it comes out. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. You Thanks, guys are great. Veronica. Thanks. Be Thanks. safe on the road out there. Be safe yeah. on the road. <laughs> Well, everyone out there, we hope that you are sticking around because we have Gabrielle Zevin coming up in just a minute. But first, we want to remind you of a couple of things, beginning with a reminder of our Writer's Block podcasts with our beloved librarian pal, Ron Block. We'll always post links under announcements each Friday when a new one drops. And on the most recent episode, Ron talked to our own Kristen Harmel about the 10th anniversary of her now USA Today bestselling, <laughs> The Sweetness of Forgetting. Coming this Friday, Ron and Kristen will talk to Frederick Bachman about his new book, The Winners. Listen, review, subscribe, just show up. (laughs) And don't forget to check out the Friends in Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa. With more than 14,000 members, the club is run by our friends Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, otherwise known as PB&J. 
Join them tomorrow, October 13th, for a happy hour with our amazing podcast host and librarian, Ron Block, and meet up with them on Monday, October 17th, for their discussion of A Flicker in the Dark with author Stacey Willingham, who just got uh, shortlifted for uh, a best book of the year from Barnes and Noble, right? right. No, or, book of the month club. Book of the month, I think. Yeah, and with Gabrielle, the two yeah. of them are. Yeah, are, can we keep them or what? <laughs> yeah, Amazing. we're so prescient. Or that something. Yeah, <laughs> did I say that right? Yeah. No. All right, ladies, are you <laughs> are you ready? It is time to bring on our second author of the evening. And I'm so excited to bring on Gabrielle Seven. So, yes, Gabrielle is an internationally best-selling and critically acclaimed author of several novels, including Margaret Town and Young Jane Young. Her books have been translated into 39 languages. Her novel, The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, spent several months on the New York Times bestseller list. And the film version of that novel for which Gabrielle wrote the adaptation was just released earlier this month, which is so cool. I know so that cool. was, I love that book so much. Um, Gabrielle has also written books for young readers and she is the screenwriter of conversations with other women for which she received an independent spirit award nomination for best first screenplay. Her 10th novel tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow was published earlier this year and was a book of the month pick for July, a New York times bestseller and a finalist for the book of the year for book of the month. <laughs> yeah, I know it's kind of trip it's over amazing. It. If that isn't enough, it is also being developed into a feature film by Temple Hill and Paramount Studios. It was also the Jimmy Kimmel pick, which was so cool. I watched her on that. So, Sean, can you bring Gabrielle on? Hi, Gabrielle. Hi. Good to see you again. Uh oh. Oh. We've got uh, pretty bad feedback. Yeah. Um, Maybe that comes from. She sounds like she's coming from like another universe. Oh, oh you're coming from a sci-fi world. Your <laughs> earbuds are dying. Uh oh. Uh oh. Oh no. <laughs> I bet she comes back. She's just like a tease. Her sound. <laughs> so you know what we're gonna do while we're waiting for her to come back. Um, Drink wine. No, Kristen. <laughs> ask us one of those. Ask us anything, and we'll Ooh, quit yeah, when she yeah. comes back. Okay, okay, I'm gonna scroll down to the bottom of the script. Like a lightning yeah. round one. She'll okay, um, right oh my gosh, hold on. Um, ah! All right, oh, I've heard, Carla Davis says, I've heard some authors keep a database of character names used in books. Do any of you keep something similar? Does anyone keep, I mean, cause all of us have written a whole bunch of books now. Do you keep track of the names so you don't reuse them? I don't. I don't, but I need to start. I've been thinking about that because I'm like, okay, I, I'm also like, I'm really boring in particular with like men's names. I'm like, I've really got to work on this and like keep track of what I've used and what I haven't. Christy, did you, did you have any sort of a, um, or Mary Kay, cause you've written, you've written series too, right? Like you've written, yeah. Did, have, have, have you kept like a list of characters in a series so that you can I don't know I should have but I'm not that organized so no nope. I should have too but I felt like when I was like in it I I was so in it that like there was not a chance that I would forget anyone but then even like going back and writing oh hi, hi Gabrielle hi Gabrielle you're back no Yep. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Okay. We will go back to the discussion with you. Okay. All right. Gabrielle, I can't wait to talk to you because I 
loved this book oh, and had tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So heading into it after my great love for AJ Fickery, I was a tiny bit hesitant, but damn girl, it is so <laughs> immersive. I was completely inside Sadie and Max's worlds, both worlds, their real one and their imagined one. And for those of you out there who haven't been able to read it yet, Gabrielle, can you tell them what a bit about what it's about? And then one of our favorites when you're done is what do you think it's really about? <laughs> um, sure. So Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is about love, art, and video games and time. And I've been saying that for a long time, and I realize it's kind of vague um, because I actually think the book is somewhat hard to describe. Um, in its yeah. bare bones, it's about Sam Mazur and Sadie Green, who have a 30-year friendship and artistic collaboration. And they're probably the most important people in each other's lives, but um, they are not lovers. They are not spouses. You know, they're not brothers and sisters. They're just colleagues and friends, you know. And so for me, I think their relationship to an extent poses an impossible puzzle. What if the most important person in your life wasn't any of the usual suspects? What if it really was yeah. your colleague and your friend? And it's, we don't see often stories of best friends and the heartbreak if something goes wrong or so their relationship definitely carries that beautiful story. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. Um, I think it's funny, like, you know, as I've talked to people about it over the last couple of months, you know, people will say to me that it's not really romantic. And I'm like, well, define romantic because romantic exactly. and sexual are not the same things. You know, they have a romance of the mind, if not a romance of the body. And so I think that's what this story is. But, you know, for me, I mean, obviously the subject is video games. Um, but I think if you kind of look at any subject, you can find kind of a secret history of you know, uni the United States or wherever you happen to be writing about during that period of time. So in a way for me, video games uh, was a great subject because it acts like a big bowl that contains many subjects, you know, within it. I can talk about race or even religion or love, career, uh, just everything you might think of, you know, by discussing video games. That's awesome. You know, and when one hears the word gaming, they think of different things. But this book, of course, is about much more than just gaming. You don't even have to like video games to read this powerful novel. Now, I know that you yourself are a lifelong gamer and that your dad was a computer programmer. Did you always know that you wanted to write about gaming? And what and really, what does that word gaming mean to you personally? You know, it's funny because many people will say to me that they aren't gamers. And actually, I think almost everybody is a gamer. I think humans are naturally yeah. playful. And I think that, um, so, you know, so maybe it's a crossword puzzle. Maybe it's, you know, just like some kind of word game. Maybe you like puns, whatever it is. Wordle. Most people game Wordle. in some way. Wordle. Or Wordle. <laughs> you know, Wordle is an interesting example because Wordle is a it was basically a love letter from a guy to his wife, you know, like some guy oh. made this game for his wife and it became this like huge thing in a way. But I, I think even beyond all of that, I think most people um, like end up gaming, especially people that don't think they game at all. So something like Instagram, for instance, really is a kind of game. You know, you have a reward system that involves, uh, you know, <laughs> 
likes or whatever it is. And it's meant to kind of like prolong your engagement. And maybe it's not a very good game, but I would say almost all of us have ways in which we, we game, you know? Um, but I, I think I got off the question. Uh, I don't think, um, you, but that's just, that is just to say, I think the connection to video games it, it, for most people is greater than they think, you know, especially like somebody who will say, I never game, but I use Instagram like six hours a day. You know, I'm like, well, you are gaming, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, but, but no, I didn't always think I would write a novel about video games. I don't think in my nine novels that appeared before Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow that there's a single reference to gaming. I never did in any interview I ever gave. I never mentioned video games at all. You know, um, I didn't see gamer as I certainly never described myself as a gamer, never saw something that, that is something interesting about myself. But the fact was, because my dad was, you know, a computer programmer in software development at IBM, I had games pretty much for like 40 years without, again, thinking that that was an interesting pastime in any way, you know? So, so I had all this knowledge. And I think my dad, um, you know, he'd always, my, both my parents worked in computers. My dad always hoped I would go into the family business. So of course I was like, I'm going to go be an English major, you know, but <laughs> this is probably as close to being in the family business as uh, I'll, I'll ever get, you know? That's great. Well, um, you know, what I found intriguing is that what fascinated and what fascinated me about the games was that the games in Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow are stories. Yeah. And so while reading this novel, um, I think um, and about this novel, I came across the, the term literary gamer. <laughs> and, the, and of course, the best games are stories. Can you talk about that? And is that what it is? You know, um you know, it's funny, I don't think I'd ever heard the term literary gamer, you know, I'm not even sure, like until like it was basically in, in the New York Times book review, uh, you know, he invokes that term, but it's not necessarily a term I think that is, that it was really in existence that much. I think what yeah. he means is to say that not everybody, um, you know, is kind of like uh, the cliche of a gamer, I guess, the person who's kind of playing Fortnite or like, you know, you know, insulting somebody over a headset in some violent game where you're shooting at things. There are other kinds of games that people play. And I think that was, you know, kind of the point Tom Bissell was trying to make. But, you know, so, but for me, I was never attracted to um, playing that kind of game. I don't like shooting at things in life or, or, in, or in pretend, you know. And so, and I think it is kind of a sad and interesting thing that sometimes it seems that our first impulse when we're kind of dealing with a new technology is like, how do we use it to do something violent, you know, but I don't think that's the natural end result of it. You know, I, it, it's a funny thing because gaming itself is very, and the term gamer is often very gendered. Um, even though over 50% of people who game are women, um, it's just thought that the kind of games they play, which are typically casual games, are less good. And so what does that sound like exactly like fiction? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and, but but yes, to speak to the term literary gamer again, you know, for me, I was attracted to games that were the closest to uh, things like novels when I was a kid. So there was a game called King's Quest Four, where, you know, kind of a riff on like our you know, Arthurian legend sort of stuff. And uh, you had to solve puzzles by knowing things about Greek mythology or knowing the things it was referencing. And so I know that that is a literary experience for me, um, for sure it is. Um, but but I'm not I'm not exactly sure that that's what, <laughs> what Tom Bissell was referring to in, when he was writing about them in the New York Times. 
I think he was just trying to say, hey, there are actually um, smart people that game, which to me is evident that there are smart people that game in so far as hundreds of millions of people do game. Sure. Absolutely. When I read that, I felt like he was saying um, that the games they were playing were very literary. The games that mm -hmm. Sadie and Max were creating, the mm -hmm. games they were playing together, the games that they loved, they were stories. They were literary arcs, right? Heroes' journeys. Yeah. And so I was thinking about the games inside the story as as their own arcs. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely um, true. I, you know, obviously I'm not a game designer. I'm a novelist for, yeah. you know, now 17 years. You made some years good games in that book, though. <laughs> I hope so. But I don't have yeah. to have the burden of going through the development process and finding out whether mm -hmm. they're fun or anything like that. You know, mm -hmm. so my, my responsibility to them is, is pretty, it's pretty slim. But so in other words, I think, but the way I tackled um, thinking about these games was probably as much through references to uh, novels and other things as much as to games. I mean, it was a combination of both. In a way, that's what fascinates me about the subject of games, that it, that they yeah. sit at the intersection of art and technology. You know, I, in a way, that's where we all sit right now, too, you know. <laughs> that is extremely well said um, and leads really well into my question. So thank you. Oh, great. <laughs> um, I read that you said, I think with novelists and artists in general, you either decide to write books that are a part of the world or you decide to deny the world. In this novel, you absolutely dove into so many social issues from marriage equality to racism to disability to gender identity. So can you talk about your choices to make this book sort of a part of the world instead of denying the world? You know, so I do remember giving that quote. And, you know, what I was, I always want to add that parenthetically, I believe I also said that it is fine to write the kind of books that don't live in the world. You know, I think sure. that plenty of people read to escape. And I, so in other words, I think sometimes there, if you see a quote like that, there's an implied criticism, which is not, you know, oh. just to me, um, what I have found, you know, as somebody who's been doing it a while, is that um, part of what is interesting to me, and, and more so the older I get, is seeing the effects of time on just the way we think about everything, you know, and so like in the book, there's, you know, the character of Dove, and Dove is a guy who... Um, is Sadie's mentor and he's, they're probably, they have an abusive power dynamic. Um, and what was interesting to me with a guy like Dove was thinking of how he fares in 1995 versus, you know, 2022, you know? And so that was something that um, I can only do if I have kind of a good span of time to work with. And also if I'm really engaging with what it means to be a person at a particular time and place, you know, so me, so for me, I, uh, part of the attraction again to writing about games over, over 30 years was uh, being able to, again, just think about what it was to be an artist and a person during those years as well. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well yeah. Let's switch tracks for um, just a minute and, and talk about the movie for the storied life of A.J. Fickery. Um, hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book and the movie are about <clears throat> and how that experience has been for you to see your book come alive on the screen? Mm. Well, uh, so the story life of AJ Fickrey is about a man who <laughs> at, kind of hates everything. He's a bookseller and he has all these feelings about what fiction should be. And then in the narrative, he finds himself 
living in a world in which all the things he hates, orphan stories, uh, you know, romance, he ends up in a story that has all of those things in it, you know, and so that's what it is for me. Um, it's a story, of, but it is also the story of a man who finds a baby in a bookstore and the extent to which I think um, much of life is determined by uh, what story you're found in, I think, as a young person. And for me, I think of myself as a baby in a bookstore in that sense, you know, so it's uh -huh. both the story of this man, but also, you know, the story of this town. Um, and I think uh, how reading can be something that kind of isolates you or reading can be something that you share with other people. Uh, the movie is about the same thing as I am a producer and was also the writer on it. I can <laughs> it turned out to be, it shares many things with the book. Um, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't a, a miracle to see it brought to life. You know, I don't know if you experienced this, um, but as soon as a book is done, there are ways in which it's a dead to me, you know, and it almost feels as if a stranger wrote it. Um, and so when you go to write, say a screenplay, luckily for me, I don't feel like it has any bearing on, um, the person who wrote the novel, because by this point, I'm a different person entirely, you know, and so, um, but in terms of watching it be brought to life, what was interesting was that, the, you know, the book was bought by a small publisher in like 2012, and it came out in 2014. Um, I probably expectations for it were pretty modest, I had a modest advance, but then it went on to sell like, I think it's now like 5 million copies worldwide, you know, and oh, so wow. it ended up being quite a big bestseller. Um, and, you know, but what was, I think, interesting was that I am a um, biracial person. My mom is uh, Korean, born Korean, and my dad is Jewish, born in America. And AJ Fickery is a biracial Southeast Asian. And so when the book came out, even though it started to do really, really well commercially, there wasn't really much interest in it as a movie because it had two two biracial leads in it, you know. But then a couple of years passed and people are more interested in stories with people of color in the leads. And so I think this is kind of a positive thing about the world. And, um, and particularly, I think it really came together after, you know, during the pandemic when um, producers kind of seemed more interested in making stories that might have an, a, more, a more uplifting message or that might make yeah. you feel better about the world we live in and not worse about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, in any case, just as an aside regarding that, I think sometimes people think that um, that kind of being optimistic and not being cynical is a sort of stupidity, you know, as if you are less of an intellectual because you managed to conclude that the world is not terrible. Um, but for me, I think it's one of the most challenging things that I do, you know, is to, I don't actually think it takes particular intellect or, uh, <laughs> or literary sensibility to conclude that the world is terrible. But yes, to go back to the movie, it has been amazing to 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 see it brought to life. But I've been involved in every step of the way. And so in a sense, it's not quite the amazing thing of like being an author who gets to just walk on set and it's all mm -hmm. revealed, you know, insofar mm -hmm. as I have been involved, you know, granularly in the producing, the writing and pretty much every other part of it. Awesome. When you're sitting in that theater and mm -hmm. that book, comes to life and AJ walks on the screen, did you have this thing or did, did it feel separate from you? Patty, I have to tell you, I think I'm just broken inside. Oh. <laughs> I, I doubt it. That, I read your I work, you are not broken. Well, I mean, maybe I am a little bit in so far as I think, 
and I was saying this to somebody recently, I think some of, you know, I, in any case, I know that sometimes I see the job of novelist. Some days you're a baby chick, you know, and sometimes you're an elephant, you know what I mean? And the baby chick writes the novels and the elephant goes on and promotes them and speaks about them. So at the point (laughs) which I'm sitting at a screening for the movie, the elephant is there, you know, and she's not moved by anything. She's just thinking about like everything that came there. You know, I think the person that feels um, is honestly the person maybe, and again, that's why I say I'm screwed up. Basically, I think the person that feels the most is probably the person who's writing the novels for me, you know, sometimes I feel that way. Oh, we all feel like there's different parts, right? I have to tell you, I think, you know, that book, AJ Fickery was a hand selling miracle. I was doing a signing in a small book store in a small town South of Atlanta and the bookseller who was in her seventies, her name was Erlene Scott went to the shelf and got that book and said, you have to read this. And in fact, you have to read it so much, I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm going to call you and say, did you read it? Uh-huh. And I think, I think that, you know, for those reasons is why it resonated so deeply with so many people. It just mm. it touched people. And, and people as, talked about it. Yeah. yeah and it was yeah. before, you know, I, and it had this success before, all the internet stuff and all the dynamic stuff that happened um, with the big box online stores. It just, yeah, that I think that was one of the secrets. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was published by a little publisher where I knew every single person. And there was a point at which, you know, and I mentioned when we were talking backstage that they had sent me on a tour that in total lasted about six months. So there was a point at which I felt like I remember hearing about Bill Clinton, that the reason he won the presidency is because he literally shook everyone's hand. But I remember thinking that that was why we finally got on the New York Times list, because I had literally met every single reader there was to me personally. (laughs) I had met every bookseller. I had basically just um, Mm -hmm. again, it was it felt so it felt literally hand sold, I guess, to the point, you know, and so um, it was really it, it was interesting to have that experience that way, you know, and, and not every book would work for that. Exactly. I think yes. there were things about the book at the time I wrote it. Um, I was thinking a lot about um, what our towns were going to look like um, as kind of, you know, we saw more and more people shopping online. You know, I thought like, I, I think like at that time, the borders chain had just closed and the borders chain had been a big, part of my early career, I'd won one of their, one of their awards that they give out and uh, things like that. And so I was thinking like, what will um, the big, the book business look like 10 years from now? And so part of that book was a response to that, you know, mm-hmm. but then again, like a place we sold um, many more copies than here was China and they didn't oh. know anything about, they didn't have any of those questions or thoughts about their, about their marketplace. So I suppose the book works, even if you're not thinking that that's what I'm thinking about. Oh, mm-hmm. I thought the book was about mm-hmm. the heart for sure. Okay. Everybody <laughs> I mean, out there. The heart as well. <laughs> yes. It's about the heart. So everybody out there, don't go anywhere. We have a surprise for you with a special, special message from Ellen Hildebrand. And we know you don't want to miss it. But Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us. I loved the book. It's been so much fun talking about it and hearing your insights about it. And we are thrilled you joined us. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Gabrielle. 
Well, before we get to Ellen's special message, um, next year, in case you haven't heard, we are planning at least four Friends in Fiction Live events, but maybe five <laughs> One of, during each of our 2023 2023 book tours at the very least, and probably a bonus event or two as well. So stay tuned for news about those so you can mark your calendars and make your travel plans to join us as we take our show on the road. And also our new Friends in Fiction first edition box is available now from our Indie Friends Booktown with an E on the end in Manasquan, New Jersey. And it features signed hardback first editions from all four of us in 2023. And, and again, zoo knife and bamboo steamer. No, I'm <laughs> It also includes a friends in fiction kitchen tile that says dinner can wait. It's time for friends in fiction. And you can order the friends in fiction first edition box right now at booktown with an E on the end.com booktown with an E on the end. Okay. Cannot okay. wait. Um, well, I was really excited today because I got to go see Ellen Hildebrand in person, which was wonderful. She was um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is about an hour from where my parents live. I'm at their house right now. Um, and um, it was just a real treat to get to see her uh, live in person. I feel like I haven't seen her in a really long time. And of course, there were you know hundreds and hundreds of readers and fans there. And I got to see a few friends and fiction ladies. So if you're watching, hi, guys. It was really yeah. fun to see you today. Um, and we took just a minute. She was very kind to take a minute out of her very busy um, schedule today. She had several events and a lot of books to sign, let me tell you. But um, she took a couple minutes to do a special little video for us that Sean is going to share with us right now. Hi, Friends of Fiction family. I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey here with the woman that needs no introduction, Ellen Hildebrand. I got to come to an amazing event with her today in Greensboro, North Carolina, about her new book, Endless Summer. So, Ellen, tell us about Endless Summer. So, Endless Summer is a book of stories, but they are not your usual stories. Every piece in Endless Summer is attached to one of my last eight summer novels. So, it's extra chapters, it's sequel chapters, it's prequel chapters. And so if you've read my last few books, you will find extra content and it's all contained in print for the first time in Endless Summer. And I just got a copy for everyone in my book club for Christmas. And I highly suggest this. <laughs> um, also, Ellen, as we all know, hopefully, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And so the luncheon that we were here today, um, you were speaking for, is for early.org, which is an early detection um, breast cancer organization. <laughs> And as many of our readers probably know, you have had your own battle and your own journey with breast cancer. So can you tell us a little bit about how that's changed your life? Yeah. So when my 2014 novel, The Matchmaker, came out, I was starting my breast cancer journey. It took an entire year. It had a lot of twists and turns, um, but I was treated at Mass General. I had a double mastectomy, which was the first of, ended up being the first of five surgeries. However, I go on the road and I talk about how lucky I am and I try to spread a message of hope because now, eight years later, I am healthy and I am And we're so happy that you are. You. you know that you're a Friends and Fiction favorite. We love you. Our favorite loves you. And they're going to be so excited for this special message from you. So everybody, get your copy of Endless Summer and tell us where we can get a signed copy. You can get a signed copy at NantucketBookPartners.com. I will sign it, and they will ship it out to you. Because we all love Tim. Yay, we love Tim. <laughs> all right, thank you, Alan. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys.
Christy, that was so good. You're like the girl, like the the reporter on the street. I love Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. That's well, awesome. um, obviously, my like sound needs a little work, and the fact that that woman just walked right. I know. <laughs> but you were such a pro. You just like let her. Walk it, like but it was like she she never had any idea that like there was no indication that something was going on. It was so funny. We were trying to sit. There were all these beautiful flowers on the stage, which you couldn't see. But anyway, if I'm going to be a roving reporter in the future, I'll try to work on my gear a little bit. <laughs> well, um, you know, and I'm glad I'm glad you asked her about uh, breast cancer awareness. Uh, I, I, it's so important. October is a great opportunity for all of us to talk about that. I just had my mammogram this morning. So um, it is it's an important thing to do. So um, a very good reminder from her. I'm getting so, mine Friday. All right. Oh, cool. I'm technically of age, but I hear about it so much that I'm like, <laughs> I mean, all, all the cool I feel kids like I'm not movie. doing something that I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm like, oh gosh, it's kind of, well, funny. you could be doing self checks before you get your mammogram. That's true. You should be doing that. You should be doing that already. Absolutely. All right, ladies, what a night. That was so great. Um, I know we're running a little long, um, but I think we'll come back for about five minutes on the after show. I'm going to ask the three of you to ask us anything questions because I know people are sending in their questions. I'm going to pick two very quick ones and we're going to quickly celebrate the paperback launch of the Santa suit. So um, just remember everyone, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, we won't, you will not miss a thing and do not miss next week. We will be here with Lisa Jewell. So we will see you next week and we'll see you in 30 seconds for a very quick after show. All right, ladies, that was such a great show. And it felt like it went by so quickly, but they both yeah. it went by so quick and they're both so interesting. Yeah. 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 It was really great. Yeah. There's a, we, gosh, we just have so much fun on here. Um, so <laughs> yeah, we do. I mean, it's, it's just, it's something new every week. I, I love it. That's one of the things I like about our show. Um, so ladies quickly, I, I know we don't want to take too much time. I know we all have you know, I have a DoorDash delivery coming, which is very important. So very starting. exciting. That's the real very reason exciting. that he's like, time is up. My DoorDash is almost here. <laughs> I know. Like, what do they do if you don't come to the door? Do they dash? I, I, I DoorDash while we're on live, the live show. Yeah, just have them slide pizza under the door. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting um, Carabas. I'm getting a chicken Brian from Carabas. I'm so Yummo. excited. It sounds delicious. It's so good. Yummy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. But um, quickly, um, as promised, we wanted to grab just a couple of your questions for a little Ask Us Anything segment. Um, and we're going to just pick two quick ones tonight. I really like these. And, and thanks to all of you for sending in the questions. We love them. Please keep them coming. Um, and I think feel like it's just a great way for us to kind of um, address what you want to hear from us. So the first question I'd like to ask tonight is from Rhonda Parrott, who asks, out of all the books you have written, which character would you most like to meet? And I like that question because it's a bit different than asking us to choose our favorite character. So Mary Kay, which of your characters would you most like to meet? Maybe Anna Jane uh, from Spring Fever because Anna Jane, yeah, um, yeah Anna Jane uh, gets divorced from her childhood sweetheart and then goes to his wedding and um, decides she wants him back. And um, I have so many questions I'd love to ask her about how um, how you have the how you have the faith in your 
in your deepest feelings to say, oh my God, I made a mistake. I want him back. Mm, I love that. I wonder if I would have picked that you would have picked her. Interesting. I know you dreamed about her a couple times. So maybe I would have guessed that. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Christy, this, is a, this is this is a hard one, I think, it because there's so many of my fictional characters that I would really like to meet. But I think I have to say Cornelia Vanderbilt, who I read about in The Wedding Veil, just because yes. there's so many reasons and so many ways that she's like such an enigma to me because there's not terribly much written about her. Um, and so I just would love to get to hear her story in her own words and, you know, do, a little, yes. do some revisions to the book. Just <laughs> yeah, that's what she had to say. I love it. How about you, Patty? No, I always say when I get asked something like this, I always say Joy Davidman, but I'm going to shift a little because I love my sisters in the secret book of Flora Lee so much. And they're so real to me, Hazel and Flora. Um, Like when I went and visited the setting of the book, I swear to you, I could see them there. I would love, I know that's not one person, but they're kind of one person. They're very bonded sisters, but I would really love to hang out with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. For for me, it would probably be Yona from the forest of vanishing stars, because I just think she has such a fascinating background. Um, I I just think she's, um, she'd just be such an interesting person to have a conversation with. On such a unique, like, worldview. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. No, but she, I mean, she's just a unique character. So, I, I And she could show us how to kill a man with our bare hand. Right. I feel like we need to know that. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. Think we need that lesson. If we um, fall into we, one of Veronica Roth's worlds, we're going to need be helpful to know that. to have Yona with us. Right. That is true. All right. Second quick question. Um, and uh, it is from Anissa, our friend Anissa Armstrong. And she asks, what are three items that are always on your desk? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Um, All right, who do you want to go first? Oh, and any of you. Patty, how about you? Do you know? I'm, I'm looking at my desk. So I'm like, let me see. <laughs> um, I always have my bullet list. Um, the a notebook with my list of things to do or brainstorms because I'll be in the middle of something and I can just reach over and write in it. Um, a research book of whatever I'm writing and then always a uh, um, glass of water yep. or tea or something or coffee or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, How about, about you, you, Christy? How about you? Yeah. Mine would be similar. I mean, it's, uh, my calendar has like, it's like my calendar on one side and then kind of my, like where I can do list on the other. other. Yeah. Yeah, uh, My list on the other. So I always have that. And, um, my huge TBR is usually on there. Like there's this corner of my desk where I keep like things that I need to do right now, like the blurbs that I forgot. And then, you know, (laughs) I'll do too. Um, not that y'all forget blurbs like I do, but you know what I mean? The thing they were like, oh, I forgot to do that. I got to do it right now. And then um, I don't, I have like a standing desk on my desk, which I think is kind of like I stand up a lot when I write. I have a little balance board that I stand on. So my like, little standing desk is like always on top of my regular desk. It's actually yeah. like a Lucite riser. It's, it's pretty. <laughs> I want one of those. Yeah, that's cool. How, how about you, Mary Kay? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I don't work at my desk that often. So my desk is 
I would say it's just a big pile of crap. But um, <laughs> I, I most always have my black and white composition book that I write in longhand. And I have, you know, one of these um, gel pens and um, either a cup of Earl Grey tea or a Diet Coke, depending on um, the temperature, the ambient temperature outside. Yeah. I like that. I um I always have a spiral bound notebook, which is where I keep my daily schedule. So it's just like one of the ones we used when we were in school, like just a, a it's not like an actual planner, but that's what I've used for years and years to plan out my day. So I have that. I have a um, I have a pen uh, in Friends and Fiction blue. Um, it's the one I sent all of you. I think I love year. that. It's a beautiful thing. I have that sort of sitting next to that. Um, and then I also always have a cup of coffee on my on my desk. Great question. Well, and exactly. it's a given we have our computer on the desk. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's like part of the desk practically. That's yes, exactly. for sure. Exactly. But I have um, so many I'm, more things on my desk right now. It's not my like towering I do right now. Yeah. Oh, maybe we well, should send pictures of our chaos. Yeah. Ladies, that was such a great show. And Kristen, I know we want to let you get to your Carabas. So we're going to, um, we're going <laughs> to let you go. We're tracking its arrival as we speak. Uh, <laughs> we're really excited. Just let us know when it gets there. Cause we're all like anticipating for you. <laughs> we need something to look forward to. <laughs> Before we say goodbye tonight, Mary Kay, can you give us one more reminder of what the Santa suit, which is new in paperback this week is about and then tell us why it's the perfect gift to pick up for readers on our holiday list uh well the santa suit is about a young woman ivy who in a very unlikely way for herself finds an old white farmhouse online falls in love with it she's just gone through a bad divorce and decides to pick up and move to the mountains of north carolina with her dog um and Duncan perkins Pumpkin Perkins, <laughs> dog, uh, and she in the farmhouse. She finds an old. Oh my God! There's a giant ugly bug on my. <laughs> losing focus here, people. Something that's always on your desk. <laughs> he finds a vintage Santa suit in in this house in the closet. And it turns out that the the family that owned the house before that he was the Santa and she was Mrs. Santa for this community for 40 years. And it turns out the suit has magic and the house has magic. And so there's Christmas, there's, there's a romance, there's magic and why it's the perfect gift to pick up for readers on your holiday list. Well, it's out in paperback. So it's very affordable and it will fit in a Christmas stocking. And, uh, and if you buy it, it'll make me super happy. And, and, um, isn't it about making me happy? Yeah. That's what the holidays are for. Holidays are about. I just want I want you to help me make you happy. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, you know what? I think another reason to buy it and to buy it within the next few hours is you can buy it from bookshop.org. Yes. Free shipping, free shipping just for the next few hours, yes. but you can buy it from Macintosh books, bookshop.org um, shop, which yep. benefits them without ha- them actually having to do the fulfillment. It comes directly from bookshop. They get a cut of the profits and it'll help them to rebuild. So, yeah. you know, that's what, that's what our community is all about. So right. um, the Santa suit is about a feel good story. And when you do good, you feel good. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, ladies. Well, I think that is it for us tonight. Um, it's a great night. I'm nervous. Oh, oh no, it's actually her door. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. 
do the sound she effects. Is. Like, what the heck? That's the anticipation is a good job. <laughs> All, All right, right ladies. Good night. So if you have a great night, we will see you back here next Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Until then, have a great week and happy reading. Goodbye. Happy Bye. reading. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.